0: Baruch Hashem. Happy Rosh Hodesh again. The second day of Kislev. The month of dedication, which I think is pretty amazing, right? Dedicating a mikveh house, and they're in the month of dedication. Hallelujah. And the Torah portion about, you know, digging up. N- the old wells and renaming them and yeah. <laughs> ones that have been filled in. Baruch Hashem, a whole lot of things going on. You know, Hashem does everything in the perfect right timing, the exact moment that He wants he needs to do everything. Hadassah. Baruch Hashem. All right, let's say our Barakah for the Torah reading, Torah study. Hallelujah. Birkat mm-hmm. HaTorah. Blessed are you, Adonai, our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments command commanded us to engross ourselves in the words of the Torah. Please, Adonai, our God, sweeten the words you have told in our mouth and the mouth of your people, the house of Israel. May we and our offspring and our offspring's offspring and our offspring of your people, the house of Israel, all of us, Know your name and study your Torah for its own sake. Blessed are you, who teaches Torah to his people, Yisrael. Amen, amen. And the bracha for the Megillah. Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech asher, kidshanu al megillah Blessed are you, and our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with his commandments and commanded us regarding the reading of the Megillah. Amen, amen. We are, as we've been for the last several weeks, working our way through Shir HaShurim and at every turn bringing down wonderful, amazing insights into this uh, holy book. This Shir HaShurim, the Song of Songs, is considered in Judaism to be the, uh, the book that is like the Holy of Holies. It's on the deep, a deep level, the soul level, as it were. The soul level, as it were, looking at verse, uh, chapter 4, rather, beginning in verse 5. We are reading from the Art School humash. If you have the Art School humash, we are on page 1265. 1265 in the Art School humash. Baruch Hashem. It says in verse five, Moshe and Aaron, your two sustainers, are like two fawns, twins of the gazelle, who graze their sheep in rose-like bounty. Now let's step back to verse four because I wanted to cover verse five and verse four from four and five from last week because there's an interesting uh, insight here that we didn't get to. So let's look at verse four and five actually. Verse 4, as stately as the Tower of David is the site of your Sanhedrin, built as a model to emulate, with a thousand shields of Torah armor hung upon it, and all the disciple-filled quivers of the mighty. And again, verse 5, Moshe and Aaron are your two sustainers, are like two fawns, twins of the gazelle, who graze their sheep in rose-like bounty. So I want to mention what Mayam Loez says with respect to verse 4. Turning there to this uh, insight, on page 183, he says, it says in the literal translation, your neck is like a tower of David, but a stately landmark, a thousand shields are hung upon it, and all the quiver is an armor of the mighty men of valor. So we've learned from this that our, our strong tower is Hashem, our strong tower is Hashem. Uh, the Torah, that the Torah is like a shield, as it were. But Ma'am Loez says this with respect to this verse. He says, In another sense, a stately edifice serves as a model for all other architects to emulate. The above teaching of our sages refers to the height towards which all mouths turn, may thus be understood in the context of another teaching as expressed in the verse, Psalm 65, 3, which says, O you, capital U, O you who hears prayers unto you, capital U, capital Y, I say capital U, capital Y, sorry, capital Y. That's too much texting. You see see what it does? It's a great evil a scourge in the land. <laughs> LOL. <laughs> anyway, so it says here, O you who hear a prayer, O you who do, who, to whom all flesh comes. This verse speaks of a singular player, Tefila which is true in accordance with the teaching of the Talmud, that the angel Memtet takes hold of all the prayers of the Jewish people, forms a crown to adorn, and forms a crown to adorn the head of the Zadik. Yes. Ma'am, yes. You were distracted. Do not text while driving. <laughs> <coughs> So it says here, talking about this verse, your neck is like a Tower of David built on a stately landmark. A thousand shields are hung upon it. All the quivers and armor are the mighty men of valor. So Ma'am Loez is talking here about the of HaMittach. He's talking about the temple, which we're going we're to tie into the temple again here in a second. Even as the base of mitach was tal filot, a height tal towards which all Israel directs their prayers. That is meot, mouths. So he's liking this to the the temple is our high tower because all the Jews' prayers are directed to the temple, which is why people say uh, in America, they say Jews pray to the east. And, you know, it's interesting. It's kind of funny because one time somebody was uh, saying that that's a pagan practice, right? That Jews pray to the east. And, that, and so this person who was saying that was a non-Jewish person. They're saying that that's a pagan practice. And they were saying because other... There's some pagan group that they read about in some book somewhere prayed to the East. And I said, Well, we pray to the East if you're in the United States. But if you're in South Africa, you pray to the North. If you're in Finland, you pray to the South. If you're in China, you pray to the West. So your theory is therefore destroyed. But there's a reason why. I mean, I said it in love, but there's a reason why. There, there's a reason why that's the case right? The reason is because we're praying towards Jerusalem, which is where the temple stood and will stand again maybe sooner in our time. But if you're in Jerusalem, you pray. If you're in Israel, you pray towards Jerusalem too. But if you're in Jerusalem, you pray towards the Temple Mount, wherever you are in Jerusalem. And if you're standing near the Temple Mount or at the Kotel at the, uh, or whatever, you would pray towards the Holy of Holies. So all of our attention is to the temple, but really, it's not just to the temple, it's to the face of Hashem. Oh, I'm sorry, what I meant to say was, was the cover of the ark. Because the sages bring down, if if you watch my Aliyah Day this week, the sages bring down that the cover of the ark is the same thing as the face of God. So we actually direct our prayers towards god's face you know like if you've seen me you've seen the father so we direct our prayers we direct our prayers we don't pray to we direct our prayers to mem, mem is another jewish idea really it's a mystical being who is an angel but not an angel god but not god you know like a manifestation of a shem and so what ma'am loez is saying is that according to this verse when we direct our prayers towards the temple we are In essence, directing our prayers toward Memtet. You know, if you destroy this temple and I'll bring it up in three days, we're directing our prayers towards Memtet slash the temple slash the face. (laughs) And Memtet takes those prayers and makes them into a crown for us. And then we take our crown and cast them at his feet. Oh, Oh, my goodness. Are Are you not seeing this? You remember that little, uh, remember that little, back in the old days, back in the old days, before uh, cell phones and stuff, we had watched, you know, what uh, called the TV? And you follow the dot, the little bouncing dot we sing the songs, right? Remember that? Back, that's old stuff, claymation. So you follow the bouncing ball and you see, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. All of this stuff is tied together. Everything we believe is rooted not just in Torah, but also in Jewish thought. So then, we have verse 5. Looking at verse 5, it says, Your bosom is like two fawns, twin gazelles, who pastor among the roses. Who pastor among the roses. Right? So Ma'am Loez to this writes and says, According to the Targum, the Targum being the Aramaic translation of the uh, Torah, it says, According to the Targum, or actually the entire Tanakh, not just the Torah, but the whole Tanakh. According to the Targum, the present verse alludes to the two messiahs who will bring about the final redemption. Those twin redeemers, messiah son of David, messiah son of Joseph, will be the counterparts of Moses and Aaron, sons of Yaakovid. Two fawns, twins of a gazelle, who work together to redeem the Israelites from Egypt. Thus it is written, As in the days of your coming forth out of Egypt, I will show you wonders. Micah 7.15. The pattern of the first redemption from Egypt, set the pattern for the final redemption. The two redemptions will match like two twins. Incidentally, the reason why the temple mount is called Moriah is because Moriah, the root of Moriah is the word myrrh, because this is the place where frankincense and myrrh are offered up. But going back to this twin redeemer concept, we've talked about this at length at our synagogue, but for many people, including many Jewish people, this is a foreign concept. That there are two Messiahs who are actually one and the same. Right? They're twins. They're actually one and the same. But when Mashiach Yeshua came the first time, he came as Messiah ben Yosef. The people... Wanted and were expecting Messiah ben David, which is why they cried out, Hoshanah Na, save us now, son of David. But what they didn't realize, or maybe they were choosing to ignore, was that the Mashiach must come first as Messiah ben Yosef, and then later come back as Messiah ben David. That, my friends, is a, uh, an absolute concept within Judaism that has existed for all time. The Messiah must come and die for the sins of Israel and then be resurrected, so to speak, as Messiah ben David. This is a universal concept, and we see it here, even in Shir Hashirim. The twin gazelles are the twin Messiahs. Verse 6, it says, Until the day blows and the shadow flees, I will get me to the mountain of Myrrh and to the hill of Frankincense. That is the literal translation And the elucidated translation, it says in the art scroll, until my sunny benevolence was withdrawn from Shiloh and the protective shadow were dispersed by your sin. So in verse 6, it actually says Shiloh, which is a reference to Mashiach. So we have here, I'm trying to find the the actual word Shiloh in this text. There it is. (laughs) Ad, yeshavuach, yahom, So it says here, he's talking here as an allusion to Shiloh, who is Mashiach, and it says, I will go to Mount Moriah, the hill of Frankincense. Now, again, quoting from Ma'am Loez, he brings down the reality that salvation is found in the Son who was offered One of the things that we do here, if not the thing that we do here, first of all, our why. Why do we do what we do? We do what we do. We we are who we are because we want to live as Messiah Yeshua actually lived, how he really lived. What was his actual faith? What were the holidays that he kept? What is the type of food he ate? What's the type of clothes he wore? What was the worship style he, he uh, uh, was involved in. Because, as we've said many times before, a disciple from the biblical idea, not from the Western mindset idea, but from the biblical idea, a disciple is somebody who mimicked their, their master 100%. Therefore, in Jewish thought, and remember, we, we study a Jewish book. We believe as Jews, naturally, but, the, but other people outside who would not consider themselves Jews because they don't realize they are yet, don't really... They, they, they worship the Jewish God. They read the Jewish God's book. They believe in the Jewish God's Messiah. Their whole ethical and moral system is based on the Jewish God. And therefore... They have to understand, but, but most people, I would say that to but I'm not Jewish. I know, that's the crazy thing.
1: <laughs>
0: We've got to fix that. Oh. Because you're in a Jewish world and living a Jewish life, and you're going to go to a Jewish Shemayim, but you're like, but I don't want to be a Jew. I've, I'm sorry to inform you that you're, you're on Jewish airlines. So you either want to stay aboard or we give you a shoot and kick you out the door. I mean, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but think about it. Think about how crazy that it is. We talked about this in the anti-Semitism uh, history and effects of anti-Semitism class that people say that sometimes and they don't realize what they're really saying is I'm, I'm, that's an anti-Semitic statement. I want to, I mean, think about it. I mean, think about that for a second. So we have this concept moving moving into this idea that we need to mimic our Messiah in every single way. So therefore, we got to look at the book from a Jewish point of view, and we have to make our argument from within within a Jewish framework, because that's the framework from which all the apostles and the Messiah himself were making their argument from that framework. So with that said, we learn this. When the Jewish people were blemished by sin and could no longer depend on their own merit, God looked to their forefathers. Let me repeat that statement. When the Jewish people were blemished by sin and could no longer depend on their own merit, God looked to their forefathers. So there is a merit-based salvation here, but it's the merit of somebody else, a merit of a Zodek, a merit of a righteous person. A Zodek is a righteous person. Salvation would come in the merit of Abraham and Isaac. The answer, to the question, though, is why? Even as myrrh is the most favored of all spices, so Abraham was foremost among the righteous men. This was made plain when he was tested by God to offer his son upon the altar on Mount Moriah. Thus, Moriah, Moriah is spelled mim, vav, resh, yod, hei, is the root of that is mem-vavresh, which is myrrh. Then Isaac freely ascended the mountain to be sacrificed, a glad offering to the flames. A glad offering to the flames. He willingly submitted to be totally incinerated like a handful of frankincense that is consumed as a spice offering on the altar. Remember that Isaac was 37. And so he willingly went to the altar and willingly laid down his life so that he could be an atonement offering for Israel. It says here, so long as our people remain loyal to their righteous forebearers by emulating their deeds and walking in their way, say emulate, emulate, Emulate. that means to mimic, right? Right? By emulating their deeds and walking in their way, they were shielded both by their own merit and by the merit of their forefathers. In your blood live, in your blood live. We were shielded by the sacrifice of the Father and His only begotten Son. You see the pattern here? The forces of evil and destruction fled like shadows fleeing towards evening from before the divine presence. All the afflictions were dispersed by the aroma of the incense offering in the temple that stood out on Mount Moriah. You know that they list several miracles that existed when the temple existed. And one miracle, just as an aside because it's pretty fascinating, was that the plume of smoke from the altar, no matter which way the wind was blowing, always went straight up to Shemayim. And secondly, even though that in the temple there were, there were slaughtering and cooking, and so outdoor slaughtering, outdoor cooking going on all the time, there was never to be found a fly in the temple. And one of the reasons, oh, the other thing is, is that because there was so much incense offering going up in the temple all the time, that they say that you could smell the perfume of the temple from miles and miles and miles away. Can you imagine that? You're walking up to Jerusalem and you smell the fragrance of the incense offering and you're still five or ten miles away. So we once had somebody come in and do a little lecture in our synagogue a long time ago and they were talking about the fact as, as, as uh, uh, you know, it's not scientific, of course, but when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, apparently they found some incense that had been mixed up and to be used in the temple and they just said that they had got permission went through a lot of hoops to to just burn a little bit just to see what the fragrance would be like out there in the desert now if you've been to Qumran it's out in the desert the Dead Sea is just a few meters away and there are flies everywhere because of the camels right and so they took a little bit of the incense, they lit it, and of course this plume of smoke came up and it was, they said it was an amazing fragrance you'd never smelled before in your life. But they noticed that suddenly there were no flies around. And so they surmised that there was a mixture, the way that Hashem commanded the mixture of the incense to be made, that it dispersed the flies, which is one reason why there were no flies aside from it being a supernatural miracle. So it says here, all the afflictions were dispersed by the aroma of the incense. The verse can also be rendered, when the day is full-blown, the sun is at its height and the shadows are dis- dispersed. I will save you from the oppressive heat and the glaring light at midday. So we learn from this, that salvation, that merit is to be found in the Father who offers his only begotten Son. So now we have a precedent in the case the father offering his only begotten son and that being our atonement merit verse 7 in the literal literally says all of you is fair my beloved and there is no blemish in you we read in the elucidation where you will be completely fair my beloved and no blemish will be in you to this we read in the commentary it says Talking about when the Torah came, what also came along with the Torah was healing, was healing. Now, I just want to point out, this is a good place to just reiterate the the reality, that um, we we were in Egypt, and while we were in Egypt, we were idolaters. We were captive to sin. We were slaves to sin, and there was nothing we could do in Egypt to to affect our release. So Hashem came and through his mighty arm and, and outstretched hand, he caused plagues to descend upon Egypt and we were set free from Egypt. What happened immediately after we were saved from the Egyptians? The next step was we went to the Red Sea and we walked through the Red Sea, which the sages said was a mikvah, a baptism. And the apostle uh, Kepha, Peter, said the same thing. And so did, in fact, the apostle Shaul, Paul. He even said that the cloud acted like a mikveh for us. So the point being is that when we left Egypt, we were set free. We went immediately to the mikveh, and the sages say that the Red Sea, what happened to the Red Sea is when we went to the mikveh, death was swallowed up in victory. That's what the sages said. Now, now I want you to see in your mind, because it's very important that you see the timeline, because the timeline has been obscured in all the mess of history and man getting up and mucking up the uh, theology. But we were slaves, then we were free, then we went to the mikvah, and now we're, we're, death has been swept away. At that point, we went to Sinai to get the Torah yes. as set free redeemed, born-again, sinless people. We, as sinless people, we went to get the Torah. As sinless, born-again, set-free people, belonging to God, we went to get the Torah. At His command, by the way. And while Moshe was yet on the mountain, say yet, Yet is a fancy way of saying while he's still up there. While Moshe was yet on the mountain, about to bring, they say about to. to. Meaning it hadn't come yet. He was bringing the Torah down, and as he was bringing the Torah down, we were dancing around the golden calf. So, therefore, it was not when the law came, 3,000 people died. It's when the sin nature came, 3,000 people died. The law was still yet coming down. And we were dancing around the golden calf. Now, it says here, Rabbi Shimon ben Yokai said, because what what we're doing today, in a lot of ways, is building a case precedent. We have a case precedent for two messiahs. We have a case precedent that that there is a, a mystical being, we'll just leave it there, that receives our prayers, makes us a crown okay we've set a case precedent that salvation is found in the father who offers his only begotten son we now we're about to set a set a case precedent that when the torah comes with it comes healing you know like healing in his wings so it says rabbi shimon bar Bar yake said when israel stood before mount sinai and declared we will do and we will hear exodus 24 7. There were none unclean issues, and there were no lepers. No one was lame. The blind could see, the mute could, could speak, and the deaf could hear. There were no lunatics, no imbeciles, no dullards, no doubters. God said, all of you is fair, my beloved, and there is no blemish in you. Quoting from Shir But when they sinned by making the golden calf, not many days passed. There were those who were of unclean issue. There were those who were lepers. As it says, command the children of Israel that they shall put out of the camp every leper and every one that has an unclean issue. And the children of Israel did so. Numbers 5, 2, and 4. So the issue is that it wasn't the law that made people lepers and blind and lame and dumb and imbeciles and dullards and so on. It was sin that did that. Because prior, we understand, we were set free, born again, washed clean, atoned for, and we're standing at Mount Sinai about to receive God's instructions for our life. And there wasn't a lame or deaf or dumb or mute or ignorant person or or leper, not one among us, not one, all were set free and healed until we sinned. Until we sinned. Which is why when Yeshua came and Yochanan's apostle says, are you the one or should we wait for another? Remember, he's the living Torah. And he said, well, I don't know, tell him this, The, the blind see and the deaf hear, the lame walk and the mute can speak. When he went back, they went back and told that to, to Yochanan. You know he danced in his cell and said, the Torah has come again. The Torah has been restored to us again. And this is why Messiah Yeshua, when he would heal those who were sick, he would say, go and sin no more. Why? Because this was just like you standing at Mount Sinai. I am Mount Sinai. Messiah, Messiah was saying, you're standing before me just like your forefathers stood before me when I, when I was coming down, and I had already healed them, and I told them, sin no more. Because if you sin, remember, sin is breaking the law of Torah. It tells us that in First John. Sin is breaking the law of Torah. Matthew seven twenty three says that oh, I don't know you. Away from me, you evildoers. That word is anomia. It means to be devoid of the law of Moses. Yeshua came as the, as the, the second set of tablets to take our sin away this is why he told the woman who was caught in adultery it was a messed up trial what they were doing it wasn't it was nothing they were doing was right but he he said listen where are your accusers he wasn't condoning her act he was he was taking issue with the way in which they were handling this thing because it was outside the bounds not just of torah law but of jewish law itself oral law not allowed to do a capital crates with a handful of guys out here in the street rocks in your hand what are y'all thinking that's not in the talmud that's what yeshua was saying that's not oral law you have to bring her before at least the san the sanhedrin katan you have to have at least 23 Torah scholar judges she has to have two witnesses And by the way where's the guy And before they're put to death, there's all kinds of protocol that has to happen. And you bring them to me. You bring her to me. But in mocking him, they were actually saying that you're greater than the Sanhedrin Gadol. By mocking him, by bringing her to him, they were in effect testifying that Yeshua was greater than the Sanhedrin. Because he was the place of hewn stones. And he looked at the woman and said, where are your accusers? And she says, they've gone, my Lord. He says, neither do I accuse you. He didn't leave it there, though. He said, now go and stop breaking the Torah. And then she later came back and washed his feet with her hair. But we have to be people like the woman. When God says, I've set you free of your sin, we have to say, okay, well, I'm done breaking the Torah now. Because... When, when we are forgiven a crime, it doesn't mean that we have free reign to now just go do whatever we want to do. If a man has stood before a judge and he was in jail for burglary, and the judge in his kind of his heart says, you know what, I've, of all the circumstances surrounding this case, everything that happened, I've just decided to just make the whole thing go away and pretend like you never did it. Now that person is going to leave that courtroom crying tears of gratitude But he's not going to say to his friends, God, the judge forgave me, and it's beautiful.
1: Man,
0: is that house still, we going to rob that house tonight? Because that's what this means, right? We're going to go burglarize some homes because this means that that we can do whatever we want to do now. That's what this means. And if you're standing there, if you saw the whole thing happen, and you saw a group of guys who had just been forgiven a crime, and now they're plotting how they're going to live their life of crime, You'd be like, hold on, man, that's not what the judge meant. You would go into the judge and you'd say, excuse me, sir, you just forgave those guys a crime they committed? Yes, I did because, you know, I felt sorry for them. Well, they're getting ready to go burglarize a bunch of houses right now. You know what the judge would do? He would say, bailiff, bring those men before me. Bring me that charge again. Reinstate it. Because the whole issue was you're standing before me because you're going to be stopped being a burglarer. And therefore, I tore up your decree. But since you've decided to continue being a burglarer, everything's back on the table. Sin is defined, my friends, by the law of Moses. That is not my opinion. That is the word of God. If, if we have issue with that, being mad at me or anybody else that says likewise is not going to help the situation. We have to come to grips with that reality. And so it says here in verse 8, continue on. Me from Lebanon, O bride, come from Lebanon with me. You will look from the peak of Amana, from the peak of Sinir and Hermon, from the dens of lions, from the mountain of lepers. Now, there's a lot to say about this verse, but we're going to touch some, we're going to touch some highlights on this particular verse because it's a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of Stuff in there, a lot of burning love in there. Baruch Hashem. Amen. So it says, first of all, before we read this, I want I want to take take us to it a very critical verse from our Torah portion this week. Let's turn back to Genesis chapter twenty-six. Genesis chapter twenty-six. Baruch Hashem. And we're going to be looking at verse 26. They took 26 out of this particular one. There <laughs> it is. Verse 5. Prayerfully, we'll get to this because Ma'am Loez touches this again. But it, it says in verse 5, God, say God. God. So God is speaking here. And he is qualifying to Isaac why, why the blessing is falling upon Isaac. How many of you have ever heard that Abraham was justified by faith, right? Abraham believed God and was credited to him as righteousness. You've heard that? Raise your hand. Go ahead raise your hand. Oh, yeah. Own it. There you go. Let it go. That's a true statement. But there's a qualifier. We've got to bring balance to the force. Because it wasn't just by faith. Because Abraham took his only begotten son and was ready to slaughter him and watch him burn on a pile of wood. And he didn't, he didn't just... God didn't say, Abraham, I need you to take your son up and offer him. And Abraham didn't go, man, I, I believe God that will... Uh, if I was to offer my son, I believe Hashem would resurrect him or, or somehow it would work out Gamzula Tovah. All right, so I'm not going... Hey, Pop, didn't God say he's supposed to offer me? Yeah, he did, my son, and I believe him. That's why we're not going. <laughs> because I believe him is because that's why we're not going. Because he said to do it, I'm not going to do it because I trust him. Makes total sense to me. I mean, I don't, care, I don't understand why y'all can't get it. but despite that logical approach it's not true okay so this is what by and so this is the verse that is you need to have this this is your this is needs to be in your quiver of knowledge that abraham believed god and it was credited to him as righteous yeah but he also did something and not just something but abraham followed the entire torah all of it. And all sages who've ever lived agree to that. Primarily based on this verse, among others. But it says here, Because Abraham obeyed my voice, he obeyed my spirit, Observe my safeguards, my commandments, my decrees, and my Torahs, plural, oral and written. When Hashem said this, if you look at the Hebrew, he is literally including every aspect of the Mosaic law because there's, there's, there's civil law and moral law and ethical law and laws we don't understand. And theology today says, well, you know, the moral laws are there. The civil laws are out. The ethical laws are mostly there except for the ones we don't want. And the ones we don't understand, if we like them, we leave them. If we don't like them, we don't understand them, we, we catapult them out. We, we dissect it. We take it into the lab, open it up like a frog, and take everything out. And leave the stuff we want. But that's not how God operates. Get it? Dissect, <laughs> Operates. So these are the words that's used. My safeguards, mishmariti, my commandments, mitzvotai, my decrees, chukotai, my Torahs, vetorotai. He uses literally, this is what I want you to take away from this. In this one verse, God uses all the legal descripts for his law. So therefore, if we're, if we're Father Abraham had many sons, Abraham. so you, he added you're a jew yes. by the way the legal definition of a jew people would say well who's a jew that'd be you no i'm just kidding but say who's a jew is somebody born of a jewish mother right but what about her mother? She has to be born of a Jewish mother. Right. What about her mama? She has to be born of a Jewish mother. Right. What about her mama? It goes all the way back to Sarah and Abraham. So therefore, the literal definition of a Jew is a son or daughter of Abraham and Sarah. But if we're followers of Abraham, God, 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 has just told us that Father Abraham followed the entire Torah, which is why he was a friend of God. He called him? You're off key. But this is why Yeshua said, if you don't follow the Torah, I don't know you. Because I only know the friends of God. I only know the Habarim. I only know the friends. So, very critical verse. It says here to this particular verse we just read, From, from Lebanon, O bride, come, O Lebanon, with me. You will look from the peak of Ammanan. Excuse me. That word, Amanan is like the word Emuna. You will look from the hill of faith towards me. Similarly, the Israelites in the desert possessed some of the spiritual reality of the Holy Land, but they lacked something really important. They lacked the temple, Ma'am Loez writes. Now, it says in Matthew 28, 20, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, now listen, behold, I am with you to the end of the age. To that point, on this verse, when it says, Uh, with me from Lebanon, O bride, with me from Lebanon shall you come, with me. Say with God. Yeshua said, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is what the, the ancient commentators said regarding this verse. When you are exiled from this Lebanon, that is the temple. It is with me, says God, because I shall go into exile with you. And when you return from exile, I will return with you. For in your affliction, I too am afflicted. Isaiah 63, 9. The verse continues, with me from Lebanon shall you come. Instead of with me to Lebanon shall you come. God stresses the promise that in your every moment, both going and coming, from the moment you are exiled from this place until you return, I will be with you. So here Yeshua is saying, I'll be with you always to the end of the earth. And by the way, the sages say, why were we exiled? To bring in converts. So we have Yeshua saying, listen, you're being exiled before you're exiled. Your exile is for my sake. So therefore, when you are exiled, I will be with you. And by the way, when you go, teach this message to the nations. What message? The message of return. The message of being born again. How many of you have heard of a Christian baptism? Everybody. Raise your hand. Own it. There you go. Okay, You've got to own your beliefs, right? <laughs> baptism in Christianity is none other than the mikvah of Judaism. That's all it is. There's nothing else. And let me explain to you, for those of you who may not know, what the mikvah of Judaism meant. It is impossible. Let me stress this with great theatrics. It is absolutely impossible to go... Imposible, si, senor. It is impossible to go into the mikvah and come up a non-Jew. If you've gone in with the proper kedusha, with the proper holiness, with the proper faith. If you come up out of the mikvah and you're not a Jew, you haven't been mikvahed. Which is why Kepha was like, wait a minute. I've got these goyim, he thought, in front of him. How can they go into the mikvah? Because why? They weren't circumcised yet. There was a debate in the Talmud about can you mikvah somebody before circumcision or must it be after? And there was a debate. There was a, it, was, it, was, it was not decided officially. And there, I, could, I don't have time to tell you, but there's lots of other sources that say there was many, many, many converts who were mikvahed first and then circumcised later. But Kaifa, holding to popular opinion, wasn't sure. For one thing, the Mashiach had never, not until that very moment in Acts 10, had never talked or offered salvation to a non-Jew and here's why Kepha was hesitant because we're not just talking see today in today's day and age 2,000 years later everybody's like oh baptism a lake a pool all it means is that you you know you're you're crucified in Mashiach you know that's not what it means it does but it is but it isn't (laughs) Kepha knew at that moment wait a minute because what I'm about to tell you it is 100 percent. Don't doubt me. 100 percent a Jewish idea, 100 percent. Which is why Yeshua said, "Nicodemus, come on, Nicodemus, stop being coy with me. You know what I'm talking about. You're just being coy. You're playing me to see what I'm going to say, but you know exactly what I'm saying." John 3:16. Caiaphas knew, man. If these guys get mikfed when they come up out of the water, they're as Jewish as I am. They're as Jewish as Moses and i don't know if that's okay because that you don't make for somebody and they come up by the water a spiritual gentile that doesn't happen it does not happen right a spiritual son of abraham no such thing not in the jewish mind other religious minds absolutely all day long 100 percent but in the real deal no and so this is why the Ruach HaKodesh had the mikveh them in the Ruach first. And it was the only time it ever happened that way so that Kepha would know. Yes. Circumcised, not circumcised. You're going to get circumcised at some point. But circumcised, not circumcised, as long as you have this amuna, it's kosher. You when you come up by the water, he did not say, you've been born again, a spiritual Gentile. No, he said, you've been born again, because that's a Jewish phrase, right. born again, a son of Abraham. How are we doing on time? Uh, all right, Temple of Tones. This good? Y'all getting something out of this? Yeah. All right, good, because it's free.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> the Temple of Tones. Yolkanon 2, 19-22, Yeshua said, Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. The Judean leaders said to him, 46 years this temple was being built, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was talking about the temple of his body. So after he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he was talking about this, and then they believed the scripture, the scripture and the word that Yeshua had spoken. Why do they say they believe the scripture? Where in the scripture does it talk about the Messiah being a temple? Or the temple? It doesn't. You have to go to Midrash Rabbah. You have to go to Talmud. You have to go to oral tradition. Yeshua was saying, I am ultimately the temple. Why? Because the sages say that the temple itself and the Beit Midrash before the tabernacle were a manifestation of God on the earth. So when Yeshua said, I am the temple, they knew what he was saying. They're like, man, the temple is the manifestation of God. And you're saying you're the manifestation of God. And he says, well, you tear down this manifestation of God, and I'll rebuild it in three days. Now, why am I bringing this up? Because it says, as Midrash Zutta comments, why is the temple referred to as Lebanon? Lebanon, the root of Lebanon means white, lavon. Because whoever brings his sacrifice there and is sinful does not depart from there until his sins become white as snow. and the fulfillment of the verse, Isaiah 1.18, if your sins be like scarlet, they shall become white as snow. The reason that our sins become white as snow when we, when we, be, when we come to the Mashiach is because he is the temple. He is Lebanon, which is why he makes us white as snow. One more... One more um, statement as it were as we conclude today are we only got the verse 9 but that's okay we'll we'll pick up stuff later verse 9 you have captivated captivated my heart o oh sister o oh bride you have captivated my heart with one glance of your eyes with one bead of your necklace it says here that um Oh, there's so much it says here, but let me just read this one part here. According to the Talmud, sister and bride symbolize two sources of closeness between God and the Jewish people. There is the merit of our ancestral patriarchs, and there is our own merit. As the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the beloved ones of God who fulfilled all the mitzvot before the Torah was given at Sinai, We are God's kinsmen, as it were. My sister, if in addition we conduct our lives in accordance with the mitzvot of Torah, there is a double measure of love and merit. God then says, you have captivated my heart. How? Because you are both my sister and my beloved bride. Thus it is written, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice. In other words, in other words, We become the bride of Mashiach through him redeeming us. Okay, But what the writer here is saying, and there's about three pages more to add to that. We don't have time to get to at this moment. But let me just try to distill it down and paraphrase. We're redeemed to be the bride of Mashiach. However, when we, like the patriarchs, fulfill the Torah for its own sake because of this relationship God says you're not only my bride you're my sister you become like a close relative to me and my bride this is what it means to be a friend of God it's not just that we believe in him but it's actually that we emulate him and when God says when you love the things I love then that's when you become my beloved but what do we know what do we know? Baruch Hashem.
1: Ay, la da dee da da, I la da dee da da, Ay, la dee da di da da da